You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. Good morning. If you're in here, we're going to be in Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. We're working our way through Romans, just section by section. Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. And any parents who have little ones in here, I make no apologies. You should have sent them there because today we are talking about circumcision, and I'm going to let you explain that to your kiddos. Otherwise, I love when kiddos are in here with us, but I'm not going there. Let's go ahead and take a look at Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. God's word says this. It is, excuse me, is this blessing only for the circumcised then? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In what way then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised, so that righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham, uh, excuse me, the faith our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as we seek now to understand from Paul's argument what it is you'd have for us, and how that would transform us, how that would inform us, and Lord, how that would move us. I ask that you would give us an abundance of your blessing to understand, to hear, to see. Lord, for those who have not heard before or not seen, open their eyes and open their ears. Lord, I ask that you would, you would show yourself and reveal yourself to us. And for those who don't know you, you would introduce yourself to them this morning. We would see those who would be compelled to believe. Lord, for those who have not walked in obedience to you or have drifted from you, Lord, as you bring them back, I ask that you would compel us to to take the steps you've put before us. God, help me preach this challenging word, and Lord, be in our hearts that we would receive it well. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. I need to state, as we've been talking and working our way through Paul's argument all through the first part of Romans, that salvation is by grace through faith apart from any work we can do. Now, the challenge is we struggle to believe this at times. And when that happens, we, we kind of do one of two things, generally speaking. Either we want our salvation to have something to do with our works, and we anchor to those works because we want to get credit for it, or we want to feel like something we're doing has a hand in it, or we don't know how to detangle our salvation from our sanctification. Sanctification is walking with the Lord, obeying him, walking and journeying as a saved person as he's transforming us. We can't, we, we struggle to detangle salvation from those things. Those are the two areas we struggle with when we have a hard time believing that faith, or excuse me, that salvation is through faith apart from works. And as a pastor, I see this confusion play out in a few different ways. I'll just list a couple. They kind of come in two categories. The first category is when people focus so much on the work that they think saved them, specifically their work, 
that they get overzealous about it and they anchor to it. Um, some examples might be when we anchor too heavily to or we overemphasize something like the sinner's prayer. Now, I'm not saying that praying and asking God for forgiveness is a bad thing, but when we overemphasize it in our lives, then it becomes, well, I said that prayer, now I can do whatever I want. I can go all the way back to 1986, and, and I said that prayer, and so now I can live however, I can do whatever. I'm free to do anything, even if it displeases God, because I said the sinner's prayer. Right? That's what happens when we, when we overemphasize a, a salvation aspect as if it's work. Or another one is baptismal re- regeneration. That's a big fancy word. It just means it, that, that we wrongly believe that it's actually the act of baptism and specifically the waters of baptism that do the saving and not the blood of Jesus Christ. We've overemphasized that work and we've kind of gotten off into the weeds. Or another one is the fear that you can lose your salvation. We've gotten over here so afraid that we could lose something. We could do some act that would cause us to lose our salvation. The Bible speaks against that. That's not true. And I would just like to ask you, if you believe, as you should, as the Bible speaks, there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation, what in the world would make you think you could lose your salvation? The second category of problems that I see as a pastor, and I'm sure other pastors in the room have encountered this as they journey with people, is that people focus so much on salvation that then they miss the aspects of sanctification, that growing with God and maturing, and, and they get so excited about the new birth that they just anchor there forever. We see this play out in two ways. The first way we see it play out is in nominal Christianity. Nominal Christians. These are Christians who, who not because they're brand new and they're learning, but they've been this way for a long time, are totally content to just enjoy the bare minimums of what Jesus Christ has for them. I barely squeaked by, I got in the door, and that's it, and I don't want any more that Jesus offers. I don't want that Christian life. And they're okay with shallow faith. They're okay with minimal growth. They want just enough to get by. That's a nominal Christian. The danger here, and the reason it plays out when when we sit with them as pastors is when life difficulties come, they don't have enough to anchor to. They haven't built on this solid rock they got just a little teeny bit of the rock and said, I'm going to build my foundation on that, even though everything else around them is still sand. And so they, they put themselves in very difficult positions. I don't know, like when a pandemic hits and all of a sudden they're completely lost. They've, just, they've been walking so shallowly in the depths that Jesus Christ offers that they don't grow. The Bible offers us a lot of guidance on life, foundation on life. For those who are regenerated, for those who are saved, there's so much here for us. And yet, the nominal Christian is content to ignore it, to avoid it, never opening the Bible, never studying it, never living it. They're okay with that. That comes with consequences. The other thing we see when we misunderstand how salvation and sanctification work together, faith uh, coming not by our works, but by the work of Jesus Christ, is that we demonstrate and we engage in weak discipleship. Just weak discipleship. So when there's an overemphasis of salvation only and no energy given to sanctification, we get really excited about sharing the gospel. And sharing the gospel is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. But then we completely ignore the next part of the great commandment, great commission, which was to teach all that Jesus commanded. So we see people 
get saved and then we never help them plug into a church or we never help them walk in the things that Jesus has. We just, we just focus on a few verses, that's it. We just, it's almost like a, a pyramid scheme. And we never grow, we never do anything else. Very weak, very, very sorry discipleship is a result of overemphasizing one over the other. Salvation and sanctification go together. And I think as we look at Abraham's example and as we look at Paul's argument, I think it helps bring some of this back into clarity. Abraham had faith before circumcision, before action. I think that should show us a a lot that might help us not be nominal Christians and not be uh, weak disciplers or in weak discipleship. So let's go ahead and jump into this. Let's take a look. Let me come back to this. i got to make this abundantly clear. Paul's argument is that Abraham was saved when he believed, which was before he did any works, and in this case, circumcision. Paul wants us to see that. And so what he's doing is he's picking on the probably the biggest, single, most significant thing in the life of the Jewish people in this day that they thought might have saved them. He says, let's just go ahead and grab onto that thing and let's use that as the example. Right? He asks in verse 9, is this blessing only for the circumcised? In verse 10, in what way was faith credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? He's challenging the notions of what they understood about that and he gives the answer in verse 10. It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. Salvation came when he believed before he was circumcised. He goes on to clarify that in verse 11. And in clarifying, he shows us that there's a difference between salvation and sanctification. And he shows us that there's this this seal which comes in a sign of circumcision. Verse 11, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while still uncircumcised. So in this case, circumcision becomes the outward sign of an inward work that God was doing in Abraham. That was an outward sign of something God was already doing inward. It wasn't that he was sealed by the physical sign. So now that you're circumcised, you're now sealed into this covenant. And maybe if you later eventually believe, and later if you come along and you eventually have some faith, then then that'll be the confirmation of the physical act. It wasn't that. If that were the case, that would make faith the sign to confirm the physical work. The Bible says it's exactly the other way around. The sign, the physical sign, proves the faith. It proves the belief. Now this makes a lot of sense for adults in this day. They believe, then they're circumcised. That was Abraham's situation. What do we do with the command we see in places like Leviticus 12.3 that says the babies are to be circumcised on the eighth day? Where's the baby's belief before the physical sign? How does that prove the child's faith? We have a couple of options. We can say, well, it doesn't, but when they have faith, then it will be retroactively confirmed. Or we can say it's not about the child's faith. It's just not about the kid's faith. It's about the faith of the parents who believe. So the child being circumcised is an outward sign of the parent's faith 
and the parents' belief. And it has nothing whatsoever to do with the child's faith. I promise if you could ask an infant and an infant could answer, the boy would say, let's not do it. <laughs> right? It's about the parents' faith. It's about the, the seal or the sign of the covenant. Okay, what covenant? Which covenant? Let's turn there. Let's look at this in context. If you would go with me to Genesis 17, I'm going to look at 14 verses. So we can understand what was going on when Abraham was asked to do this this thing. It's on page 12 if you're using the Pew Bible somewhere near you. Genesis 17, verses 1 through 14. And I know it's a big section of Scripture. I'm just going to read it, and let's just hear the context here. I hope you'll follow along with me. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him, saying, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will set up my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell face down, and God spoke with him. As for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And you and your future offspring, or, and to you and your future offspring, I will give you the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan, as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. I'm at verse 9 now. God also said to Abraham, As for you and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring, whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant." People of Israel eventually had lots of outward signs to show their faith. Festivals and activities and all sorts of sacrifice. They had all sorts of things to show that they were believing God and following the Lord, all sorts of outward signs. But this was the very first opportunity they had as an outward sign of some kind of inward faith, and it became a very big deal. It was an opportunity for Abraham to show the sign and the seal of the covenant, this particular covenant. Now, initially, it was to show the descendants of Abraham as recipients of the covenant, and it was to show the faithfulness to God. So Abraham was circumcised, and he circumcised his 13-year-old son Ishmael, among the others in his household. But I don't think Ishmael believed, because after Abraham sent him out, he eventually married an Egyptian woman. 
he and the Egyptian woman had 12 children. And they ended up becoming a nation of people called the Ishmaelites. If you remember, Joseph was sold to the Ishmaelites, who also in Genesis 37, verses 27 and 28, were also called the Midianites. There's a blending. Now, some of it's geography and some of it's people, but there's a blending. And many times, but not every time, many times the Midianites were enemies of God. And then in Psalm 83, just in case there's any confusion, David is praying against the enemies of God and the people who want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. And he's praying and saying, God, do something about these enemies. And he includes the Ishmaelites among the enemies of God. That's Psalm 83, 6. So I doubt that, that Ishmael carried on the practice of circumcision and said, oh, this is what we do to be part of the the covenant of God's people. This is what happens. It doesn't seem like that carried forward on that line, right? So what ends up happening is physical circumcision. As we see this in or out, cut off situation, physical circumcision came to be the sign of the membership of the nation of Israel, which was also called the children of Abraham. So now there's something going on here that's a little different. Not necessarily the exact physical descendants, but the children through belief and faith. So now that's the sign for those who are in the nation of Israel, but it might not necessarily be, and it doesn't seem that it's an outward sign anymore of an inward belief like it was for Abraham. Because a lot of people just started doing it because that's what you do when you're born in the nation of Israel, right? And so it wasn't necessarily anything uh, beyond that. And it's certainly not the seal as proof of faith of salvation for the new covenant. These don't line up anymore. Jeremiah 31, 31 says, Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then you jump down to verse 33. I will put my teaching within them and write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And you might remember when we preached in Romans chapter 2, 28, 29. Paul said, For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly. And true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. Now, this wasn't easy for the church to get their head around. The very first major debate in the early church after Pentecost, was on the very topic of circumcision. And they were wrestling with this, and they were struggling with this. The question was, do new converts who were Gentiles, who weren't circumcised on the eighth day, do they need to be circumcised as a seal of the proof of their belief in their salvation before they can be saved? Do they need to be circumcised to show that they can be a part of the New Testament church? That was the debate. And there were brothers and sisters in Christ who were really wrestling with this. And they were going around saying, no, you got to do it. And others were saying, no, you don't. What is this seal? And how does this work? And do we understand it correctly in the new covenant church? So all this debate rages. They take it to the apostles. A lot of conversation happens. And this is what the apostles say to those who are asking, do I need to be circumcised in order to be saved? This is their answer. Acts 15, 28. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision, and ours, 
not to place further burdens on you besides beyond these requirements, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. No. There was no circumcision in there, and those were the things that they were saying, look, we want you to do these things as you journey as a Christian, not do circumcision. And if you would, turn with me over to Acts, uh, page 981, Acts 15. I want to show you Peter's argument in that debate is really telling. Uh, I appreciate what he has to say. Acts 15, verses 7 through 9, helps us kind of see what was going on. Acts 15, verses 7 through 9. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers and sisters, you were aware that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. So they heard the message, they believed. Verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. I'm going to, uh, verse 9, he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. There's a seal that's being discussed here. Think about the seal in the movies we watch. We don't do this too often, and if we do, we're probably kind of weird. We take a big thing of wax, we put it in a candle, heat it up, soften it up, squish it on a letter or an envelope, Then we take this big thing, we squish that down into it, and that thing has some mark, a seal on it. And that seal indicates that it's us, and it's our authority. The letter is ours. We own it. And it's our authority. And and so we see that in movies. Oftentimes the king would seal the letter, and only if you had the appropriate authority from the king could you open the seal. Or think about the seal in the book of Revelation. Like, who's worthy to crack these seals because it shows ownership and it shows authority? Or think about the seal that was placed on Jesus' tomb. They came and said, oh my goodness, the the people are going to come and they're going to rob the tomb. And Pilate said, make it as secure as you know how to make it. So they rolled a stone across it, which was normal, but then they put the Roman seal on it. So anybody that came up to that would have to know there is authority and ownership, and only those who can, can uh, deal with that sort of authority can open the tomb. That's how they knew to make it secure. And then they also put some guards outside. Or think of a college transcript. It's only official if it has that pressed seal in the paper, right? The seal doesn't make the grades. It doesn't do all the stuff. But the, the seal shows that it's official. And without the seal... It's not official. So now listen to what Paul says in verse 11. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. He believed and there was a seal to show that he belonged to God and that there was something official there. What's the seal for New Testament believers? If it's not circumcision, which I think I've shown you it's not circumcision, what's the seal for New Testament believers? Ephesians 1.13 says this, In him, referring to Jesus Christ, in him you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. 
You were sealed when you heard the gospel and believed. And you were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. Abraham believed the seal. Excuse me, Abraham believed, and then the seal was the sign of circumcision. When you believe, the seal is the promised Holy Spirit. Now, there are some brothers and sisters among the church, you might know some, you might be one, who argue that the seal of circumcision now directly corresponds to baptism. They show there's a direct correspondence. And I, and I realize I'm talking about people who are making their argument who might not be in the room. So I want to be fair to that argument, but I want us to be able to understand it and see it. Okay? They, they say that we need to apply the instructions of circumcision to baptism because there is a direct correspondence and link between the two. It shows the seal of the covenant into God's people. And their argument shows that the baptism seals people or confirms that people are now a part of God's covenant people. Circumcision sealed them into the nation of Israel. Baptism, according to this argument, seals them into the church and into God's people. Adult converts to the church still have to believe. They have to show there's belief, right? But infants, like in circumcision, can also be baptized based on the parents' belief, right? There's, a, there's an argument here, it's called paedo-baptism, that it lines up in the same way with circumcision. I'm not persuaded by that argument, I do see the argument. I do think there's an argument that can be made, but I don't find it persuasive because Paul says in Galatians 3, 7, those who have faith are Abraham's sons. Not those who were baptized. Not those who were circumcised. Those who have faith are Abraham's sons. Faith is the saving work that Jesus Christ does for us. It's a new covenant of Christ's blood, and those who believe are then brought into and adopted into God's family. They're justified and adopted. And that faith comes before the action or before the work. So there's no reason for a circumcision before there's faith, and there's no reason for a baptism before there's faith if that's actually what does it, but that's not what does it. Belief does it. And then the circumcision... And correspondingly, the baptism are an outward sign of an inward work that already happened, not one that needs to be confirmed in the future. That's how that goes. Okay, so then you ask, well, then what does baptism correspond to? How, how, wait a second, what's baptism for? Can you turn the heat up just a tiny bit for us? It's blowing on my head, and I can just feel that air just, whew. It's cold in here, yeah. What does baptism correspond to? Well, it doesn't correspond to a work you do before you believe. Because baptism is not a part of salvation. It's a part of sanctification. It's a part of faithfully showing an obedience to God because one believes and because one trusts and because one says, I'm going to follow God. It's an outward sign of an inward work of faith. 
Peter called upon the people to repent and be baptized. Acts 2, 37 through 38 says, When they heard this, he was preaching the gospel. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Heard the gospel message. That's a good response to the gospel message. Peter replied, Get circumcised. No. He replied, Repent. That's where the belief is. And be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit, the seal. Believe. Then be baptized. And you're going to get the Holy Spirit, not because you were baptized, but because you believed. He says in verse 42, or excuse me, Luke records in verse 42 in response to Peter's preaching. So those who accepted his message, the gospel, that is, they they believed, those who accepted were baptized. Not before, after. The model of the Bible shows us that we need to follow Christ in believers' baptism because it's a picture of dying to self, being raised in Christ in new life, saying we're walking with Jesus because we've been transformed and given a new heart and we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. First salvation, then obedience, and we're called to be baptized as a faithful act of obedience. And the Bible gives us that model over and over and over again. It's not an act that comes before. It's an act that follows belief. And usually it's the first step that a believer takes when they believe. Now, before I go into some examples, for any of you who have not done that, but you profess faith in Jesus Christ, or for any of you who might have been baptized as an infant, I want to let you know I understand where you're coming from. When I was a kid... I was not a Christian, I was not a believer, but we went to this church family camp when I was 11 years old, and my mom was really excited about all this stuff in some way, although we weren't believers. And at the family camp, a bunch of kids were being baptized by the pastor. My mom said, you should go do that, thinking it was going to somehow make me, I don't know, an obedient kid and make me better somehow. I don't know, what, but it wasn't about salvation. It was about a religious act that we didn't understand. So I walk down there. I watch all the kids. I listen to what the kids are saying to the pastor, and guess what I do? Say the exact same thing. Unfortunately, this pastor who didn't know me, who wasn't pastoring with me, who didn't talk to my parents, thought it'd be okay to baptize me. Now, that was a mistake on that pastor's part, and if he were alive today, and I know who he was, I even have a book on my shelf from him, I would tell him, you made a mistake. But he went ahead, listened to what I had to say, baptized me in the lake there in McCall, Idaho. And from that moment, for many years, I thought, well, I'm baptized. I'm good. Now, at that point after that, I lived like an atheist. I lived like a pagan. Didn't matter. And then along comes college. I'm married now. It's many years later. I get radically saved. I was, wow, God is amazing. Everything changes. My wife and I start following Jesus. And I'm kind of like, well, I think I already did it. I'm not sure. Nobody really walked me through that. So a few years go by. Now it's starting to get a little weird because I've been a Christian for a while, right? I'm on staff part-time at a church. I'm in seminary, and I am processing theologically what happened. And I'm feeling the burden of that, going, oh, man, this is just going to be embarrassing. I'm on staff at a church. I can't get baptized now. That's called fear of man, not obedience to God. So I go to the pastor, and, and I love him to death. He says, well, pfft, what's the problem? Get baptized. Like, no issue. Didn't he? Like, that's how you fix this. Great. 
So he thought it would be wise, we were doing an evening service in the summer series, if I preached the service that then was followed by the baptism. If that's not a little awkward, I kind of slip off, I come back, there's a bunch of us getting ready to get baptized, and i got a swimsuit on, and we're about to do this thing. And everyone's going, what just happened? Here's the deal. I understand if that's where you're at, I get it. I get it. If you didn't do this in one of your first steps that the Bible shows us, I don't want you to feel guilt. I want you to feel conviction. Don't be ashamed. Get baptized. That's how you deal with this. And I promise if you do it here, we put up a tub over here, and we all come, and everybody gets to come and watch. This is the home turf. There's nobody that's upset at you going, I can't believe that you didn't get... Everyone's going to be clapping for you. You're obeying God, and you're walking, even if it wasn't your first step in obedience. But... I say all that to say we need to understand that it should be the first step in obedience. That's what the Bible shows us. Allow me to show you with a few verses. And I could show you with a lot. I've reserved it to 40. No, I'm just kidding, six. <laughs> Acts 8, 4 through 13. Philip goes and he preaches in Samaria. And this is what it says. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. They believed the next step was baptism. Acts 8, 26 through 40, the Ethiopian official, he hears the gospel. He says, why shouldn't I be baptized? He believes the very next thing he thinks he should do is get baptized, and he was. This is one of my favorites. We often forget Paul's baptism. Paul has a radical conversion as he's out trying to kill Christians. I mean, imagine this. I was on my way to go kill a bunch of Christians and arrest them and stuff, and Jesus shows up, and all this stuff happens, and then I get made blind, and then this guy named Ananias comes, and he helps me, and then we pray together, and, he, and then, then it, guess what happens? He was baptized, presumably by Ananias. That must have been an interesting moment. How about Acts 10, 44 through 48? Peter preaches to some Gentiles. They believe and then they're radically filled with the Holy Spirit. Wow, the seal is on them for their belief. They're children of Abraham. And then you know what it says they did right after that? They were baptized. It's this act of faithful obedience, not salvation. How about Acts 16, 11 through 15? Paul preaches the gospel in Philippi. Lydia hears. God opens up her heart to receive the gospel, it says. And then it says immediately, she was baptized. The baptism didn't save her. The baptism was an outward sign of what God was doing inward. Acts 16, 25 through 34. This is the last one I have. The Philippian jailer, after this amazing turn of events that all the jail doors are broke open and they can't see anything because they don't have electricity in there, the jailer's like, oh no, all the, all the prisoners ran away. But they didn't because they're men of good character. The jailer's going to kill himself and and they cry out. Paul's like, don't kill yourself. We're all still here. And he's blown away by their character. They're different than the rest of the world. And he wants to know why. So he hears the gospel and he responds. He says, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not believe and get circumcised, not believe and get baptized, not believe and join a church, not believe and take 10 years figuring it all out. Believe, and you will be saved. Then verse 33 says, right away, he and all his family were baptized. Baptism does not save us. It doesn't. 
It's an act that shows an inward work that's already happened. Baptism does not bring us into God's covenant people. No matter when it happens, belief brings us into God's covenant people. Baptism is an outward sign that shows that belief. Also, baptism is a proclamation that you hold to and you believe the gospel. It's your opportunity then to proclaim the gospel, to say, I'm dying to self. I should have died, but I did it, and Jesus did it for me. Baptism is a symbolic picture of going into the grave and being raised to new life in Christ Jesus. It's a symbolic picture, but we have in the Bible a specific picture that's not so symbolic. It's a thief on the cross. That's what a baptism is supposed to look like. The guy's hanging there next to Jesus. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. Well, that guy's on the cross. He says, please remember me when you're in paradise. He believed that Jesus was who he says he was. And Jesus said, today you will be with me. That's what a baptism is supposed to look like. But Romans 12, 1 and 2 says we are a living sacrifice, which means we're not going to just be physically sacrificed. We're alive. But that's a symbolic way to say this is what I do. This is what I've done. This is what I believe. And it's a proclamation to the church that you believe. Apart from that, it's just the sign of that belief. It doesn't do anything else but make that proclamation and, and show the world what you believe. See, now this brings us full circle back to Paul's argument. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, not works, none of any kind. The actions of our Christian journey, the physical things that we do, are things we do after we're saved. They have nothing to do with our salvation. They have everything to do with our sanctification. They don't save us. They grow us. They mature us. Things like taking the Lord's Supper, giving, serving, proclaiming the gospel, going on mission trips. Yes, getting baptized, discipling, studying, forgiving, serving the orphans and the widows. Those are all things that grow us and sanctify us, but none of those things will save us. We need both. We need salvation, and we need sanctification, we need to understand the difference. So let's, let's think about the problem I put at the beginning. If we don't realize that there's no work we can do, we'll strive for works. If we don't understand that salvation and sanctification are separate, we'll intertangle them and remain nominal, not do discipleship well. We'll be unfaithful. We won't be walking in the very best things that Christ has given us to walk in and grow in. So what do we do? Paul and Peter and Philip and many, many others in the Bible and many, many, many more beyond the Bible, outside the Bible, preach the gospel. And people, are, people believed, and it says they were saved. What did they preach? God created all of mankind to enjoy him and to worship him. But Adam, our federal head, the first man rejected God in sin. He, did, he disobeyed, did what he was not supposed to do. And in doing so, he incurred the judgment of a holy God, which was a death penalty. 
We are born into his nature, and we sin ourselves. So not only are we like Adam uh, in every way, we also continue to do what Adam did. But God, in his love for us, sent his only begotten son, who would come, who would live a perfect life, who would die on a sinner's cross in our place, so that all who would believe could be saved. I'm going to say something that will offend people, and I'll probably have online trolls having a heyday. But I'm going to say what Peter said to the people he preached to. He said, we are sinners, and God sent a Savior, but you killed him. We killed Jesus. We nailed him to the cross. And he did it willingly for us. And like he said about the Romans who are nailing him, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. You can have salvation in Jesus Christ. And where you should be dead, he died. He was laid in a tomb. By the power of God, on the third day, he was raised just like you can be raised if you put your faith and trust in him. He spent 40 days with the disciples teaching them, this is now sanctification for them, just like he will do for you. And he ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for us day and night, praying. And he sent the helper, the Holy Spirit, the seal of the promised one who shows us the inheritance to come, who seals us, who shows that we are his. So we have the covenant of Christ's blood on us, so we stand before God. He says, I see my son in you. I see the Holy Spirit in you. That's the seal that says, I own you, and you're saved. That's the gospel they preached. Then they called upon all those who heard to believe. And if you believe, you will be saved, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. I call upon anyone in here, anyone watching, if you don't believe, why not? The consequences are too grave. If you're hearing this and it's stirring in your heart, believe and be saved. And if you're saved, if that's you, then your next step, if you have not done so, is be baptized. Not because it saves you, but because you want to show and proclaim that you trust the Lord. Abraham was called to be circumcised. Men, this is a lot better opportunity for you. This is the home team. The angels will celebrate your faithful obedience. Be baptized. And if you've been baptized, praise the Lord. As a believer, you said, I believed, then I was baptized. Praise the Lord. But continue to walk in the sanctifying steps that Jesus is putting in front of you so that you will grow. Study his word, all of it, not just your favorite parts. Obey it, live it, follow it, even the difficult things. Serve one another and give and care for the widows and the orphans. Give a cup of cold water, proclaim the gospel. It will grow you and you will benefit from it. And it will be wonderful. Everyone, everyone, myself included, has an obligation. We've been commanded by God to respond to what we've heard here. Believe, be baptized, Walk faithfully in the Lord until the day of your last breath when you stand before him. All of us are somewhere in that equation. What is your next step? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you would send your son when we don't deserve him. 
Thank you, Lord, that you would show amazing grace when we do not deserve. Thank you, Lord, that you would call us to believe, that you would make proclamation, that you would send your messengers around the globe and even to us to proclaim the amazing and good message that brings salvation. Lord, I ask that anyone in here who do not believe open their eyes and their ears that they would see no better alternative but to believe, to profess that you are Lord. God, thank you for the church that walks alongside your people those you are calling. Lord, for any who are struggling with this, may they be okay to talk with the church or talk with the pastors, God, to get help in this. That's why you've sent them according to Ephesians 4. You've sent the staff, pastors here to help, but you've sent the church too. God, we want to be obedient to your command. We hope and pray, God, that you would cause, like Lydia an opportunity for those to say, yes, I believe. Lord, I ask and beg that you would cause the faithful hearts of those who believe if they have not been to be baptized. And God, I ask that you would help every single one of us to walk in whatever next step you're putting before us in our sanctification, that we'd be faithful, that we would journey with you. Just like Abraham, no questions asked, was circumcised. May we be no questions asked people who will do whatever it is you're putting before us in our faithful journey with you. In Jesus' name, amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.